Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host Mike. And we finish our trilogy here in the month of December with the Steven Spielberg, dare I say classic? Is it a classic at this point? Catch me if you can. I think so. I got the impression that while it was a hit and critically well-liked, that it was treated as, like, Spielberg, like, populist fare. It got a Christmas Day release, and so I think this was seen as, like, lighter Spielberg, but not lighter like the Terminal, where there was a lot of hate for it, so. Wait a minute, was that Spielberg? I thought it was Zemeckis. Uh no, I think it is is Spielberg. Like oh wow! So apparently cool. your hate is so strong, you're putting a completely different filmmaker. Like Spielberg, <laughs> the I I actually have never seen it, so I, I'm I, I have no opinion about it. But for the whatever terminal. reason, was his follow up to Catch Me If You Can? Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Well, I, that's it's on the list because I went through a phase with Spielberg. You know, my the first film that I ever saw in the theaters here in the United States was Jurassic Park, and immediately fell in love with it and then later on when you're like oh it was you know this guy spielberg who directed it and then you start going through his filmography and there's so much out there and then right around the time between high school and college that's when you kind of get into i guess the criterion collection you start learning more you you go beyond imdb you know that top 250 list which is which must be so different now than when i first looked at it we're getting old, and, Web. Getting old. I know. <laughs> I know. I think Joker is in like the top 50. Oh, I was God. like, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> and once you find out about Godard and Kurosawa and, and uh, Bunnell and all these other really, really uh, fascinating directors overseas, all of a sudden Spielberg seems to lose the, the that, that charm that you ultimately, you, you first what? had. He does, he's no longer the greatest. I don't like and where now, this is going on. This is not very Christmasy. No, no, no. This hold, this has been a very a negative. Like every every week, it's been like goodness. Like uh, for our Christmas month, you're doing like the the first scene from Scream, where it's like let's kill Drew Barrymore every week <laughs> <laughs> on trilogy. And no, no, it's a homecoming for me. Spielberg in recent years has been. Uh, it's been all about. Oh man, I I need. I want to get back into Spielberg, and and I've been going through the film. All this this the stuff that I totally dismissed when it came out stuff like munich i was like ah it's just another spielberg whatever now i'm like i want to seek it out uh i did that i recently um didn't like it but whatever uh <laughs> war war of the worlds uh i like that quite a bit except for a couple things in it um and then now catch me if you can was brought up uh but i think you brought it up uh to put it in part of our our christmas month and I immediately was down for it, and thankfully it went on sale, I, I want to say, like a week, maybe two weeks before we we had set a time to record, and so... I mean, we, we, we put out some feelers, we're like, hey, we're interested in featuring this on Trilogy and Theory, do you want to move some digital units or what? And, you know, they accommodated by <laughs> giving us Certainly. that $4.99 price point. I was thrilled to uh, rewatch it because I don't know if I have ever seen it completely in one sitting. You know, I've seen scenes here and there. It's been on TV uh, uh, throughout the years and I've caught glimpses of it. Uh, but one thing, one thing that I have always gravitated towards is that opening sequence and like the John Williams theme for Catch Me If You Can in that opening sequence. I probably hum that 
weekly, more so than any of the other stuff that John Williams has done. And this is a great score by Williams, actually. Oh, okay, you know what? Let me let me let me let me take that back a little bit. This is a pretty good score by John Williams. Uh, <laughs> this is the Christmas episode. When, when are we getting to the jolly? This well, is, well, this is all jolly. <laughs> pretty uh, good. The way the way Spielberg uh, described it was, uh, it's a score in the idiom of like progressive jazz, something that Charlie Parker may have written, and and a good chunk of it is that. But uh, I went through the score, uh, the actual uh, like soundtrack the released soundtrack and there are still sections in it which is just homogenous john williams like it could be in any one of his movies it could be in star wars like there are sections i was like wow this is just totally generic john williams bs but then he like totally wows you with his um exploration i guess into the jazz uh genre so uh very very happy ultimately with the score um i'm i'm i walk around the house and, and I'm just doing little things here and there, moving the laundry, and all of a sudden in my head I'll be, dun -dun -dun, dun -dun -dun. you know, it'll like, for whatever reason, like the score will pop into my head and I'll hum it out. So, uh, very happy about that. And I wish more films had animated opening sequences. It was just a a refreshing thing. I, I was watching it with my wife, and my wife actually she joined me on, I believe, two of the films this month. So I was thrilled about That's pretty that. Pretty good batting average. Uh, I don't yeah. know if I've had that yet, or maybe I've forced it upon my wife. I don't know if it's been my choice. <laughs> like, you know, I have a distinct impression that she was with me on Juno, uh, but by the time we got to Youth and Revolt, I think that that was being forced upon her. You know, speaking of animated sequences, that's what came to mind, because I'm like, man, Webb really does like this on these credit sequences, even this horrific as a like claymation looking michael sarah is <laughs> uh, a little bit a little bit prettier here a little bit you know, it's more handsome this credit sequence can you guess which of the three i did not subject my wife to and i believe rightfully so i would guess that it would be batman returns hell yeah it's batman returns <laughs> you know what we had just watched beetlejuice <laughs> I know. <laughs> we had just watched Beetlejuice a few a uh, few weeks ago, and she was like right there with me. We were like, "This is nonsense!" <laughs> like, can we? And so I was like, "I can't subject her to this because I feel like it's going to be too much Tim Burton. It's going to be Beetlejuice levels of Tim Burton." back to catch me if you can i i totally love this film i think it is a great christmas film i i think i'm going to be revisiting it every christmas this is one that has been on my list since um 2002 i, I think that uh maybe not quite uh every year but most years uh it is in my uh christmas catalog if you will <clears throat> along with <clears throat> nancy myers the holiday which I've also forced upon you, not for podcasting purposes, but just to make you a better human being. Yes, and, and I do want to talk to you about that. I don't know if we're going to... If we start now, that's all we're going to talk about. 
I mean, that's that's just me. If you bring up Nancy Myers' the Holiday, then yeah, well, it'll be four hours later at this point. Uh, but yeah, those are two, I guess, you know, relatively modern uh, Christmas classics in the Deniston household. And I have good memories of watching this with my uh, grandmother, uh, who loved criminals. She just she loved the the guys who got away with things. <laughs> so I have fond memories of watching this with her, my sister, and my mom. I don't know where the men in the family were that day. I don't know why I was the only male rep- male representative for this family trip to the uh, movie theaters on Christmas Day. But it's a it's a really nice memory I have of us being together. And uh, yeah, this is a lead character that uh, my granny adored. She she was very much in the Christopher Walken uh, mold of sticking it to the man. Uh, with that gleam in her <laughs> eyes. So, yeah, of course, I have obvious reasons for loving this film. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio makes it so easy. He makes it so easy for you to just fall in love with him. You get all the women, who all famous uh, actresses, uh, like Elizabeth Banks. I was surprised to see her. I was surprised to see Jennifer Gardner in, in that very brief and, and very risque role. I feel like she doesn't Jennifer do enough Garner? of that. As a prostitute, it's, it was like right? I, I felt like I needed a fainting couch couch to to, to deal with this. It's like <laughs> Alias, like I, you know, Alias. You know, she she did dress a little sexy at times, but it was all business, all for this. And it's like, yeah, this this seduction, this dance she's doing with DiCaprio for <laughs> for checks, uh, a little unseemly, unseemly in the Spielbergian way, which is still not that unseemly. But for me, it's Amy Adams. I love Amy Adams in this. Oh, she was great. She was great. Um, and and it, it broke my heart as much as it broke Leo's heart when he's waiting for her at the airport in the car and he sees her and then he's looking at her and he sees the agents. And I was like, oh, I, I even, you know, even though I've seen this film, I think, before, in that moment, I was on the edge of my seat, and when I saw her, I was like, oh my god, that's wonderful, and then when I saw the agents, yeah, my heart just sank. I was really uh, heartbroken in that moment, and you know, one of the things about these charismatic criminals is that you want them to get away with it. You are totally in their corner, no matter what they do, uh, because you've, you've been through the backstory. I mean, you know, I think the first act of the film is probably the weakest. Uh, I feel like I want to get to all the good stuff. And so like, I don't want to put in the time and effort. Do you feel like DiCaprio was probably a little too old to be playing teenage yeah. son at that point? Like yeah. they try to dress him a little bit, part his hair a certain way, but it's like, it's not totally working, but I, I admire the spirit of it where it's like, well, if he's going to play him as a 20 something, it's not like we're going to bring in another actor for like that five year difference. But uh, yeah, he's right on the cusp of being too much of a man for this. He can't quite do too young, and he can't quite do too old. Mm. Like, the later scenes also are kind of like, eh, this is pushing it a little bit. And I was, uh, and when I was watching those younger scenes, I was like, yeah, he looks a little too old. And then I watched a press conference in Germany, I believe, uh, that uh, Spielberg, Hanks, and Leo, they were uh, discussing the film, taking questions, and Leo had, like, a goatee. I was like, he looks like what he looks like now. <laughs> like, he was, he, I was like, yeah, he was way too old to be that young. Um uh, but go, going back to him, them, you wanting to uh, see him get away with it, I feel like the setting of this film is very important. And obviously, it's based on a real story. So none of this could have happened outside of, like, the 60s, essentially. Like, the technology nowadays is just so advanced, and 
the, the thrill of the hunt would have been completely gone. The exploits of the criminal that you are just captivated by non-existent. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad all of this happened and I'm glad all of it happened in the 60s uh, because otherwise you, you lose out on, on the, I guess, the charm of it all. I mean, how do you get lost now? How do you, how do you have, uh, you know, a true, you know, Spielberg character of a, a young man uh, running away from home, that, that, that ability to have that adventure. I mean, <clears throat> what happens in Catch Me If You Can is not, not that far off from like, uh, you know, Bilbo in The Hobbit, you know, just running <laughs> to have his own adventure. He just, you know, he just leaves his front door and just goes off into the wilderness and is going to have this grand time. And you're seeing that in a more traumatic fashion in Catch Me If You Can, although it's pretty traumatic that those dwarves come and, like, fuck up his kitchen. For me, at least. I, I never would have Certainly. Thought. Absolutely not. Those disgusting dwarves messing around with my house. Like, I mean, you had your bit with your child, you know, that you love and adore, messing with your Nintendo Switch cases. Can you imagine if a bunch of dwarves just came and just knocked over your shelves? No way. I'm trucking with them. But, to your point, as far as it had to be this specific place and time, the ability for him to put on these different personas and maybe persona is not the right word because I think his persona is pretty much the same. It, just actual identities. He, it's just his name and profession, but he pretty much has that sort of like starstruck quality about everything in life. Like his character represents the possibilities of youth that your life could go and you could become a doctor. You become a pilot. You could uh, date this adorable a woman with braces and Amy Adams, or you could, uh, you know, if you're web, you could be uh, going to the, the red light district and find yourself with Jennifer Garner in Spielberg's universe. <laughs> the possibilities are endless, but yeah, certainly if you're getting into uh, now, how often we're filmed from crossing the street or going into a restaurant, you know, pre COVID times. No, the, none of this would, it would become a, a CBS procedural uh, where people are just staring at computer screens and not having great moments where you're having this adopted father annual Christmas phone call with the man who's trying to catch you. Just, oh, it's just, it's just so Spielbergian, the whole thing. I, I, yes. I love it. phone calls and talk about the character of Carl. Now you're obviously in love with Leo and you want him to get away with it. You're having a blast watching him uh, navigate from job to job. Were you at all ever hoping that, oh yeah, I hope Carl gets the better end of this a little, you know, I kind of, kind <laughs> of always, always was because I like Carl. I like, <laughs> I love his introduction as this humorless guy that's got the the best and only knock knock joke that you'll ever need in your your arsenal of knock knock humor <laughs> and <laughs> yeah you know, even when he's frustrated uh burging on anger with this kid as soon as he knows that he's a kid while there's some sense of shame that you're being bested by this this young mind um he 
to me at least, immediately takes on this paternal aspect, even before they develop a relationship, where it's like, I I need to do this because this kid doesn't know the harm he's doing long-term to his life. Like, yes, he is on this adventure, and you do get a little bit more in this fictionalized version of the film, uh, of this man's story, that, um, you know, the trauma that he went through with his parents separating, and... You know, Carl gets to meet his his mother, and you have that that great moment where she's like, "Let me just write you a check." Like, you know, boys will be boys. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'll take care of it. <laughs> and you know, she doesn't. Unfortunately, I guess we're all involved. She doesn't have millions of dollars to in her account to absolve um, little Frank of this. But is that your reading of it? Because I I feel like as soon as the the age is verified, I mean, he's he does it with a yearbook photo. To me. Carl does not, he doesn't just come across as just like a cop where he's just like a number and like, I just need to mark him off my list. Like this, this case has been hanging over my head. It does feel protective in some way of stopping him. And I mean, he is the one that when Frank asks his own father, like, just ask me to stop. Carl is the one that steps in to do that. I mean, he does it for professional reasons, but there does seem to be a genuine strange relationship that's developed with him even though physically they're not often together until later on in the film. It's kind of like uh, the, the way American Gangster and Heat, it's like the whole point is that these two characters are separated and, and they're they're meeting. It's everything that the film is building up to. So I think it was much more effective in that regard. And yes, I do believe that he's very much in that paternal uh, role uh, and it kind of goes back to his character because he still considers, I think, his daughter in the film, like, still a child, even though she's not anymore. But that's not how he sees her. It's a very, very fatherly way of looking at things. Like, no matter how old you get, and like, I, my parents tell me that all the time. It's like, we used to clean your potty. You know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm in my 30s and I still you know, <laughs> get told these things. So he's absolutely right there. And one thing that you don't want, I guess, uh, with with either parent, you know, is you want to believe them. You don't want them to be lying to you. And uh, the scene in the end where he finally confronts him, um, where is he? It was in France. And he he's swearing, you know, he's like, I, I'm telling you, they're out there. Uh, I brought the cavalry. And um, the little switcheroo that Steven Spielberg gives you there where he, they get out and no one's there. And even in that reveal... Uh, DiCaprio, the way he plays it is that you know, I'm sure like on the inside it would be incredibly painful that he is turning himself over to a lawman based on this weird bond they've developed and this faith that he's being honest. And there's a moment where he thinks, okay, you got me. Good one, Carl. But then realizes, no, uh, Hanretti saved him from going out in a uh, strange blaze of glory because, because of the, the embarrassment. I mean, this is a it doesn't seem like, uh, certainly when we get into that sequence, that other people are taking this paternal aspect with this kid much longer because he's just had too much fucking fun just living off of their incompetence, basically. And the, their systems they have in place uh, are incredibly shallow, um, even still later in the later stages. I mean, that's probably where you're getting into maybe the television procedural aspect. If this was, you know, if this was a, a hit film and the like... 70s i could see them 
uh, transferring it with you know different actors to make it a TV series of like, well, Carl and Frank Jr. like at the office, like chasing down future criminals trying to do this this these check ah. schemes. Because uh, mm, I, I don't like that. Well, uh, it, it's just stupidly. Um, I had not watched uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore until like last year for a podcast directed by with Dave. And didn't realize that's where Alice, the sitcom, came from. Was that that? And that that's a stranger one to me than Catch Me If You Can becoming a CBS procedural on Friday nights. Because I can kind of see that direction. You're right. I think nowadays the immediate reaction is make it a miniseries. Whatever content you have, let's put it on television. And while there is merit to it, you can flesh out characters and do things episodically that you couldn't do on film I don't know. The experience of a film is very different, and I think you can generate a different kind of an emotional reaction, a different kind of experience, a different kind of attachment to these characters. The fact that you know you're only going to be with Leo for this hour, excuse me, two hours and 15 minutes or whatever. Like, you're never going to see that character again. And so it's the ephemeral nature of it, I think, makes it so much more special. I'm glad you said that because me and, my, me and the wife have been having marital problems in the sense that she is far more of a tv person and i'm more of a movie person and there's even television <laughs> series uh i like you know you like the way i set that up but like let me tell you we're having some bad marital problems she just likes <laughs> she likes yeah. episodic s storytelling i just can't stand it but, um and even stuff that i'll enjoy i'll always kind of wish like that would make for a better movie if you'd done this in two hours two hours and change uh, it's it's stronger to me because you do see the strings in television. You see where they stretch things out and introduce new characters, and it's it's far more narrow. And you know, movies are in that way, I guess, are far more removed from real life than what television can be. You know, you can something like The Office, you can enjoy that sort of sense of family, and in that case, a literal workplace that you hang out with those people for years and years. But it doesn't work for something like this. I, I like the maybe more glamorous, fictionalized version of a narrative arc between, as you said, the Heat-like example. These two men in this specific time that developed this bond. You know, I, I may not find Carl's knock-knock jokes as funny if they were the opening sequence of every episode for seven years. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that might get old. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm so happy that we did catch me if you can. And I'm so glad that you, you mentioned it. Um, I'm, I'm loving my return to Spielberg era that's happening in the past, like year, couple years, uh, because I'm really beginning to become a, a, a film nerd again. Like this is how it was like in the beginning. Like I remember watching ready player one, um, and I didn't see it theatrically, but I feel like there were a good number of people being like, oh, this is garbage. Um, or, or they, they didn't. They felt like it was like uh, Spielberg doing the greatest hits or something, uh, a bunch of cover songs, whatever the metaphor is. But I sat there and I was watching it on my television, and I tell you what, it was just, it just felt like a director who was having oodles of fun, and that's what this film kind of feels like to me. It just feels like Spielberg, he's done all he needs to do. Like, even before this film, his filmography is just stupendous. Everything we've seen, you know, since, like, 2000 is just gravy. Just gravy. And that's what that's what Catch Me If You Can is to me. I mean, imagine a time, like, I don't think that 2002 is seen as some sort of 
great achievement in film, but by God, you got Minority Report in the summer and Catch Me If You Can for your Christmas selection. I love when Spielberg is like going back to back. I I love those those pairings they usually did. And that's that's coming off of AI, which was no small undertaking. But you know, for my uh, my dumb American money, uh, give me Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. Give me his his. Uh, I think that actually is like considered a, a, a thematic trilogy in itself that those 2001 2002 that's his like running man uh chase movie trilogy not on trilogy in theory though <laughs> we're bringing in <laughs> no not at all batman we're bringing in detectives and la confidential that's how we're doing it this month when you see those trilogies out there on on blogs where people have thought about them and they're thematically connected that makes too much sense for us that way too much sense we're 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 bargain bin like that's where we are that's what i want to see i actually think let's see what we can find we're more like jazz web like you know it's more of like if someone actually saw the behind the scenes it's whatever particular mood one of us is in. And then you're asking the other guy, can you riff off this? What can you add to this? And of course you, you brought up this Christmas thing. And what I'm adding is, uh, I'm actually demanding a catch me if you can solo for myself. I'm like, that's gotta go. Ahead. It's, it's <laughs> one of the Christmas movies. So uh, I can't wait to get into it on our next episode. The, uh, our own defense of our Christmas trilogy. 